Oh, Heavenly Father, we're reminded this morning in the special revelation of your Holy Scripture that our commandment is to follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, even unto death. And so it is we learn that thankfully we lay claim to something in Christ more precious than life here on earth itself. We have been justified. We have been cleansed free from sin. We have been promised eternal life. We who are in Christ this morning have been ransomed from the quagmire of death that signaled the death toll of our future and certain judgment in hell itself. We have been ransomed, rescued, and set on our rock, Jesus Christ. Lord, bring our easily wandering minds and our wayward affections and our complacent hearts back to the truth of Scripture this morning as we open its pages. And let us value once again, Lord, as a treasure hidden in the field and the pearl of great price, the reality of the kingdom of God for every blood-bought saint in this room. And if there are any who fellowship among us who have not met you, Lord Jesus, may your Spirit draw upon them through the preaching, the singing, the fellowshipping around your word today, that they might be irresistibly drawn to their knees, confessing their sin before a righteous, holy God, and trusting in his sure way of redemption in Jesus Christ our crucified and risen Savior, ascended into glory and now ruling and reigning over this universe and His church. And it's in that holy name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord for the privilege of joining together in fellowship and in opening up His Holy Scriptures this morning. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 13. While you're turning there, I'll give you the title of today's message is Kingdom Corporate. A corporate understanding of the kingdom of God. Corporate meaning all people everywhere at all time in the world today. Unregenerate and saved alike. What does the kingdom of God look like in this context? Matthew 13, the third great discourse Jesus' sermon in this gospel. Today we'll consider the second of the kingdom comparison parables. We've considered the parable of the sower, and this morning we'll consider the parable of the weeds. Verses 24 through 43. If you are able, if you would stand with me for the reading of the word, we'll open in Matthew 13, verse 24. He, that is Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. 
So the servants said to him, And do you want us to go and gather them? And he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Verse 31, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowd in parables. Verse 34, indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Verse 36, then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the kingdom, is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The son of man will send his angels. They were they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. And throw them into the fiery furnace, and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear the word of God. You may be seated. The context surrounding this second parable, that is verse 24 through 30, the parable of the weeds sown alongside the good seed, I'll give you in a moment. For the purpose of today's message, we'll set aside verses 31 through 35 to consider at a later time. There's two other abbreviated parables, kingdom comparisons as well, therein. One is the mustard seed, the other is the leaven. Then there's an explanation in that section of parables and their purpose. And then in verse 36 and following, we get the interpretation again to the disciples of the parable of weeds that he had delivered earlier. The context surrounding the parable of the weeds is certainly rich. It's infused with all kinds of densely packed meaning. Certainly theologically rich content not only is saturated within the context of this parable, but surrounding it as well. As in all of Jesus' teaching, the immediate proximity and the greater, bigger picture of biblical understanding is necessary for us to catch something of the weight of what Jesus is proclaiming here. The context surrounding and infusing this parable with meaning includes a few aspects. I'll list five of them for you quickly. First of all, there's a grouping of kingdom comparisons illustrating and emphasizing the amplitude of the kingdom. There's seven parables we've mentioned in chapter 13, and they all tell us something by comparison, by analogy, something of the amplitude of the kingdom of God. The word amplitude refers to scope, strength, power, 
majesty, glory. It's almost worthy of a worship song, the definition of that word itself. It's a word that includes a kind of power and intrinsic value, a kind of resplendence, a kind of thing that we know to appreciate even in our fallen humanity and that we still retain something of God's image and we crave things and we value things that are rare, that have value like gold or diamonds. And in this section, the kingdom of God is amplified in its beauty, its majesty, its resplendence and its value. And we even see pictures like this later given of the kingdom of heaven, that is value references like treasure hidden in the field and a pearl of great price. So the context is a grouping of kingdom comparisons illustrating the amplitude of the kingdom. There is in this section, that is this passage of Scripture, between the parable and the explanation of the parable, a break in between again. And you'll notice this is the second time this has occurred in this discourse. There's a separation of the declaration of the parable and the explanation of the parable. Verses 24, he put another parable before them saying... The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Who are these people? Who are them, as it were, in front of him? Well, we find in verse 36 the answer as distinguished again from those who received the explanation. Verse 36 says, Then he left the crowds, so that would have been those he originally spoke the parables to. He went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. So again, there's a distance between the declaration and the explanation, both in time, location, and audience. He had been outside, he goes inside, he had been talking to the throngs, now he's talking only to the disciples, and some time had passed in between. And I would just call your attention back to a previous message titled Secrets of the Kingdom, to give you an explanation for why. That had been Jesus' pattern in the first parable in this section as well. Number three, note of context. This parable of the weeds can be compared to the closing parable in this section of Dragnet. In these six parables following the parable of the sower, which is kind of a preeminent theme, then the six that follow, they can be arranged in pairs. And they occur together except for the weeds in the parable of the dragnet. But notice the similarity as you turn over and follow me in verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is compared, is like a net that is thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. And Jesus says, so it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see the explanation of this parable is identical as the analogy is slightly different. The meaning is essentially the same. There's a pairing of the parable of the dragnet to the parable of the weeds. Fourthly, note of context. This is another planting analogy. Jesus is drawing on the experience of the hearer in relationship to agriculture to highlight some distinctions. And you'll notice a slight difference in this parable from the one that preceded it. Before, Jesus was drawing distinctions between types of soil. In the individual, the soil can sometimes be stony, thorny, hard, or by God's grace, fertile. In this section, Jesus is drawing distinctions 
not in soil, but in seed. There is some seed that is to say that produces fruit, that produces fruit that is valuable to the kingdom of God and represents the fruit of the word of the kingdom. But there are also alien seeds. There are also destructive seeds that are planted and these produce weeds and so they grow together. This helps us to understand a different nature of this parable's meaning than the first one. The first referred to more the individual aspects, what takes place in the human heart, and the second refers to corporate. That brings up my fifth point, second in con, in, uh, fifth point in context. Second, in this three-part ex- escalation in kingdom, kingdom amplitude, we have the parable of the weeds. That is to say, in the parable of the sower, and then the parable of the weeds, and then the parable of the mustard seed, all three are planting analogies, but they illustrate in escalating form that is a little bit bigger and broader the amplitude again, or the range and the power of the kingdom. And the first parable focused on the individual, the nature of the human heart that is either receptive to the seed or is, rejects the seed as hard or retains the seed for a period of time but then withers because it takes no root. Or there's competition with the seed by way of cares of life, deceitful riches, and then it withers and dies. So parable number one describes the individual receptivity to the kingdom of God, spiritually speaking. But the second parable is additionally helpful because it tells us aspects of the kingdom of God in the corporate. What does the kingdom of God, what weight does it carry and What are the aspects of Christ's rule, not only for the individual Christian heart or the individual heart, whether it receives or rejects the seed, but what are the implications for Christ's rule for those that deny his existence, for those who have never really cared to hear the gospel in the first place, or for those who stand in obstinate rebellion against the proclamation of Jesus' own words, even in this era As we see, there's unbelievers around us all over the place. Today, the parable of the weeds in escalating fashion tells us how Christ's rule is asserted and extended over all people, not just the hearts that he redeems for his name. And then thirdly, we'll cover, Lord willing, in our next message, the amplitude of the kingdom in relationship to time. This three-part escalation of kingdom amplitude talks about the kingdom ramifications for the individual, and then the corporate, and then all of history. A sort of pan-historical, like panorama of history, a pan-historical view of the future of the kingdom is also emphasized in these parables. So with that introduction and context, let me give you a heading for four points this morning. The kingdom of God in its corporate context, requires we understand the following. And these are just four subtitles or four subheadings to divide into parts the parable of the weeds. The kingdom of God in its corporate context requires that we understand, number one, the proprietary nature of God. Proprietary means ownership. Secondly, the dichotomous nature of fruit. Dichotomous means two parts, two different strains. Number three, the concurrent nature of divine sovereignty. Concurrent means two things at once. 
And number four, the divergent nature of human destiny. Divergent, of course, means two directions. This kind of gives us a format or a framework for understanding this parable. In order to understand how the kingdom of God is asserted and how it interacts and how it, what its implications are for the corporate, all people, for all time, it requires, first of all, that we understand that this world is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, and everyone, all who dwell therein. Verse 24, he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But when men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. As we move through this parable, we'll couple it with its explanation. So then move over to verse 36. And he left the crowds, went into the house. His disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He, that is, Jesus answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, and the field is the world. And the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. First, I would have us notice who owns the field and what is the field. A kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Possessive pronoun. What is the field? The field is not just this church building, your personal experience, the individual Christian heart, or even a city that has experienced a revival, the field that is the area that God owns by proprietary stake, that he is the property owner of, that he owns the deed and claim to, is this entire world. On what basis? By what claim does the Lord own the world? By creative right. Everything that exists owes its existence to the spoken word of Almighty God. And what arrogant man would dare to say that that which owes its being to his word alone does not owe its allegiance to its creator. When we walk through creation, we witness as the Bible poetically declares trees praising the Lord by operating according to their creative ordained commands to draw up water from the soil through the root system that God designed to branch out and to collect the sun's energy through photosynthesis on beautiful array of emerald green leaves. And the word of God says these trees praise his holy name. They evidence his creative power by obediently not as a conscious individual that is like a human but certainly as a created thing they operate according to God's ordained purpose and thus serve him glory and so the vibrance of nature and the beauty of this world rings with praise to almighty God and testifies to his creative power it is his and it serves to glorify him And every time I think about nature itself and the willingness of a sunrise to display for God's glory alone the beautiful palette of unimaginable colors that has inspired artists throughout all the ages to try to achieve something 
but never quite achieving that same beauty, depth, and dynamic and vivid display of overwhelming, awestruck wonder reminds me of the wickedness of the human heart. Who are we to say, prove to me you exist? Who are we to say, I will do my own thing, thank you? Who are we to say, knowledge can be gained from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and not by obediently following the created command, the created ordinances and the direct special revelation commands of our Father, of our Creator, God. The parable of the weeds remind us, reminds us that this earth in total, this universe indeed, is His field. The psalmist tells us that the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. Also, worship songs galvanize around this theme throughout Scripture. The Psalms cover to cover, certainly, but those times of revival and awakening in God's people turn to Nehemiah 9. What are they singing? The heaven of heavens with all their hosts. You've created the earth and all that is in it, the seas, and all that is in them, the hosts of heaven, worship you. And here the convicted people of God are pleased to join the voices of the hosts of heaven and the seas and all that is in it in offering to the Lord praise because He owns them, because He created them, because He breathed life into them. And indeed they recognize by His grace alone He had ransomed them and covenanted with them, transplanted them from the kingdom of evil and darkness once again into the kingdom of light. Made their hearts such that the soil was fertile again to be sown with the seed of the word of the kingdom. There's another phrase that strikes me that highlights the proprietary nature of God in this earth and it's simply this, while his men were sleeping. It, the conditions in this analogy describe the interplay between authorities And what they presume to do. In verse 25, but while his men, that is, the owner of the field, the master of the house, the Lord of heaven, the king of kings, while his men, his operatives, were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among them wheat and went away. Only thieves operate in the cover of darkness. Only thieves are sensitive to that alarm sounding that sends a chill up their spine. Only thieves cloak themselves in deception and sneak around at night. Only those who don't own the property and don't belong there presume to enter these different situations under conditions like this. They are uninvited. They are dispossessed. They are aliens. They are intruders. They are rebellious. They are the ones who do not have any rightful claim on the property They seek to grab, to procure, and of the glory of God they seek to steal. That is to say, any other truth claims, any other proposition, any other worldview, any other ideas outside of the good seed that ought to be sown and produce fruit in the field, any enemy seeds are nothing but weeds sown by trespassers. Nothing but weeds sown by trespassers. And it's easy to imagine in your mind a picture of a field that you might own. And if you've had poachers 
on your field or just four-wheelers taking a joyride through your crops, what will you do? You will post signs more than likely around the edge, perhaps put up a fence. You've seen those signs before. What do they read? Trespassers will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. And there's a sign on the field, God's field, around the perimeter. And Remember, this field is the entire world. He owns it all. And that sign on the perimeter of the field of God's ownership says, trespassers will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. What might that be? It's not 90 days in jail. It's not doing time in prison. It's a stay under the wrath of God, justly deserving every hell-bent sinner from which there is no reprieve. It's the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. It's the condemnation of hell itself. It's the fiery furnace. It's a place of untold misery and torment where every trespasser will receive his just dues if he is not found in the good graces of the owner of the field. To understand the kingdom in its corporate context requires we understand that God owns the field. He's also referred to in this section as the master of the house. Usually a field, a cultivated piece of property nearby has a place of residence. The owner of the field, the farmer, the husbandman has a place close to the field so that he might steward it accordingly. Therefore, the farmhouse represents a stake, a claim, a homestead. It is a symbol, a sign of ownership over the extent of what he controls. And thus again we see in verse 27, that in the servants of the master of the house came to him and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? I wonder how many of us, that term is a little unfamiliar to us. I'm sure we've read it in the Word a hundred times. But how many of us think of the Lord as our master? After all, the Bible says that we are slaves to righteousness. One way to say it is this. We've mentioned this in the past. Slavery is an inescapable concept. That doesn't sell very well in the individual, you know, free will libertarian ears of the average rebellious American citizen who wants complete autonomy. You know, slavery they see as nothing but a blight from the past where one holds tyranny over the other. We're talking about the owner of the world, the owner of your life, the one who spoke you into existence, who knit you together in your mother's womb, who knew the sum of your molecules, your, indeed the atoms, the electrons and the protons and the DNA code of your very being before you were even conceived in your mother's womb. You better believe that he not only owns the field, but he owns you. And we ought to see the Lord as, yes, a loving, yes, a gracious, but nevertheless, Still a ruling, authoritative, powerful master, our Savior and our Lord, and we are His servants. He is the master of the house. We serve at His pleasure, and we do so on His terms, and His terms is the life-saving blood of His only Son. Number two, the kingdom in its corporate context requires we understand the ownership of God, the proprietary nature of God, but secondly, the dichotomous nature of fruit. That is, there's two kinds of fruit. There's two kinds of seed that produce two kinds of plantings. This, of course, would be the fruit that was spoken of earlier as sown on good soil in verse 23, 
or the good fruit that's referred to in Matthew chapter 7 as contrasted to the weeds. Verse 25, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So in this example, we have weeds and wheat. Verse 26, so when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seeds in your field? How then does it have weeds? Later in the explanation, after saying in verse 37, the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, he says in verse 38, that is the Lord Christ, the field is the world, the good seed is the children of the kingdom, and the weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. There's two different kinds of fruit, as it were, plantings that are growing up, sprouting, cropping up all over the place on the field today as it has always been. There are weeds and there are wheat. A phrase that strikes me as particularly salient is weeds among the wheat. Jesus is declaring that understanding of the corporate nature of the kingdom of God is is that there will be two kinds of plants growing next to each other. Ones that are described, that are explained as the sons of the evil one, but also the antithesis, the children of God, the children of the kingdom. Children of the kingdom, side by side, exist for a period of time, though brief and interim, with the sons of the evil one, which are the devil. We see in Genesis 3.15 that Jesus is reaching back all the way to the language of antithesis that we've touched on recently. Jesus says to the serpent, in declaration of curse, but also promise of salvation, that there will be two kinds of seeds. There will be the seed of the woman, and there will be the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the woman represents the elect, the favored ones of God, from whom would come the seed of seeds of the woman, if you will, Jesus Christ, who would stomp on the serpent's head. He would bruise his heel, but he would destroy utterly Satan. And with him, all of the children of Satan. So this language here in describing the kingdom of God corporately is drawing on this ancient language of antithesis. There are two kinds of people, that is to say, sons of the evil one and sons of the kingdom in the language of Matthew. These days, it's important to identify that this is not dualism. There's this idea of equal and ultimate opposing forces in the world that comes up in popular Hollywood films and in the consciousness of most individuals. They recognize evil and they recognize good. And they recognize something of almost an irreconcilable conflict between the two. Life is tension between evil and good. And that's all we really have to look forward to in the future. And that's really all there's ever been are these equal and opposite opposing forces. And though there is equal or there is present in the world today both evil and both good, and agents of the same, and children of the same, the Bible is clear that if we are to understand the corporate nature of the kingdom of God, we must see that there is a shelf life for evil. 
that there is even a purpose in God's sovereignty for it, and evil will never ultimately triumph. Though these plantings are of a dichotomous nature, two parts, and they grow together, there will be a separation and a judgment. And this passage declares as much. Although this is true, and although this may be apparent to some degree before us, it nevertheless is a difficult concept for us to grasp. How do we know this? Well, I think it's illustrated in the parable as well. Note verse 27. When the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? So you see, the servants, though loyal to the master, nevertheless are either ill-informed, ignorant to some degree, or confused, or maybe a mixture of those three. And so they approach the master and ask this question that is heavy on their minds. How then does it have weeds? In other words, oh God, I know that you are powerful. I know that you are sovereign. Why is there evil? And why have you allowed weeds to grow in your fields? This speaks to the perplexing nature of providence that often tempts the faithful to fret. Every one of us are familiar with these, this tension and this difficult circumstance and processing the world that we live in. I'm telling you, it is testimony to our finitude, our finiteness. We are just creatures that understand a very narrow degree of ultimate reality that God knows perfectly, beginning to end and comprehensively and infallibly. Remember last week in Psalm 37, verse 1, The admonition from the very first words of David's hymn are, Fret not. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. You see this cry all the way back to the Psalms where the temptation for man to fret and to be in anguish and angst because of the perplexing nature of the providence of God. And the call is to wait on the Lord. The call is to be not envious of wrongdoers, Here's a promise, verse 2, they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. And again, you see biblical language referring to things that are planted. They may bloom for a season, but they will surely fade. As it's stated in other places, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Or in this section, the wicked, the sons of the devil, they grow for a season, but they surely fade. But the word of the Lord and the children of the kingdom, they stand forever. Verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land, befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, your justice as the noonday. And we see even in this parable that there is ultimate justice at the end of the reaping season. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Over, we could say, in New Testament language, the weed that springs up alongside the children of the kingdom. Refrain from anger, forsake wrath, fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. Verse 9, the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. The perplexing nature of providence sometimes causes the strongest among us 
to be confused and to ask certain questions of the master of the house. Have not you sown good seeds in the field? Why is it then that weeds have sprung up? And the call from Scripture, even in Jesus' own parable here, is to not let a premature evaluation cause our faith to be cut off at the knees, but instead confess that our Master is all-knowing and omnipotent. He works all things together for good for those that are the call according to His purpose. And when we look at a small segment of history, a small incident in our own lives, or even the pressing circumstance at the threshold of our doorstep, even this morning, we can be rest assured in the words of Christ that there are two kinds of plantings growing. One will wither and will wither soon. The other will stand in the storehouses of the master of the house forever. Recall for a moment as well, under this two natures of fruit, Matthew chapter 7. Do you remember when Jesus used the analogy of fruit to describe the false prophets and discernment that's required of the believer to know what to listen to, what to take in, and what to reject? There is a certain frame of mind that the believer is called to pay attention to because when we're out negotiating the challenges of our life, again, as a finite creature, we find ourselves easily deceived if we do not stay close to the Word. In verse 15 of Matthew 7, Beware of false prophets who come to you, as in, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. There's that analogy again. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. Nor can a diseased tree bear bad fruit, bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. This language is strikingly similar, again, to the parable of the weeds. Jesus has said that every tree that does not bear fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And so he has said in similar language that they will be thrown into the fiery furnace in a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, that is, those who are weeds. They will be first bound in bundles, separated from the wheat, and then burned. Not to be gathered into the barn, but to be utterly destroyed. And again, he says in the parable of the net, the dragnet, that you will throw them into the fiery furnace in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus says that you will recognize them by their fruits. These days... Just to keep you a little sharper, and I hope this comes from an accurate biblical context in my attempts to explain, but man is easily prone to error. And one of the errors today is to believe that coming to Christ is merely something you say and something you sign, like a decision card. And there are those who it's sometimes labeled by the critics as easy believism or a more theologically a uh, technical term, antinomianism, which means against the law. That is, the law plays no role in the life of a believer. Now, it's, we need to draw distinctions. The law certainly plays no justifying role in the life of a believer. Only Christ's blood can do that. But the law does play a role in the life of the believer. Notice this language, and it's recalling in Jesus' own words, those who will be cast aside, Yet finally, all causes of sin and all law breakers will be utterly cut off and destroyed. 
Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapters 5-7 through seven, when He's closing His first great, great discourse? He says, they will, Many will come to Me saying, Lord, Lord, haven't we done th- thus and so in Your name? I will declare to them, I never knew You. Depart from Me, You workers of lawlessness. I've heard preachers say that really in context, in Matthew 7, Jesus is saying that Fruit, good fruit versus bad fruit is just in the context of teachers, false teachers. And there really isn't all that um, much importance placed on good or bad fruit in the life of a believer. I'm telling you from the context of Scripture, we can assume that is utterly false. Why? Because Jesus goes on to explain that there are two kinds of plantings. There are weeds that produce no fruit and are good only for burning. And then there is wheat that produces fruit that is consumable, that is pleasing to the master of the house, the Lord of the field, the Lord of glory. And again, in the parable preceding it, there are those who bear fruit, 30, 60, and 100 fold. Yes, there are degrees of fruit. Yes, fruit by grading on a curve can be pitifully small. However, there is no fundamental change in a regenerating sense that takes place in a heart of a believer that remains ultimately fruitless. It will produce fruit. There's a necessary change that accompanies those who are a new planting, have a new root, are a new creature, are a new creation. There are truly only two kinds of people, and you're either one or the other, and Jesus teaches us to identify them indeed by their fruit. Moving on to number three, the kingdom in its corporate context requires we understand, thirdly, the concurrent nature of divine sovereignty. The concurrent nature of divine sovereignty. Perhaps a related idea. Reading again verses 29 and 30, but he, Jesus, said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Backing up a verse, I should have started with 28. He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? He said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with it. The first phrase of note is this lest you gather lest in gathering you uproot the good with the bad later on Jesus assures us in the explanation that there will be a gathering but it will be one that will be uh, w- that we will wait for the field is the world verse 38 the good seed is the ki- children of the kingdom the weeds are the sons of the evil one The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age. And so there's a a time frame reference. There's a historical note of destiny of humanity in relationship to the justice of Almighty God. At the close of the age, then the reapers, who are the angels, will be dispatched and commissioned. And at that point, the weeds are gathered and burned with fire. And so it will be at the close of the age. So understanding the corporate nature of the kingdom, we may find it initially disturbing as a believer that there seems to be great gaps in our experience where justice has gone wholly unconsidered or tragically overlooked by the different situations around us all the time. Even now, as I preach this message, 
There are countless, to my knowledge, I have no idea how many, but our attention is thankfully brought to a few to hopefully draw us to prayer. There are countless individuals suffering their faith, for their faith unjustly in prisons, in torture chambers, with the threat of death and maiming, dismembering, and being separated from their family, and horrible atrocities all over this world. What about those who sit in a jail cell now rotting and their only crime is their faith in Christ? The only thing that they have committed by way of evil according to the terms of the government is they want to love their neighbor, lay down their life for Christ, and preach the truth. The only thing that they have said to rabble-rouse is there is hope in Jesus Christ from the crushing ultimate effects of sin. How unjust does it appear to us that those evil operatives are allowed so much, even if temporal power, to slap chains on a mother who just had a baby, who is also accompanied by a toddler two years old in the nation of Sudan right now, and even foreign, you know, uh, even international arm twisting seems in the short term not enough to get this poor woman released to go back to her Christian husband and to live a life in relative peace. And her heart aches as she's committed to a hundred lashes. Her heart aches as she is sentenced to death by hanging. And sometimes in our frail humanity, we cry out, where is justice? Why are weeds growing together with the wheat? The explanation of the corporate nature of the kingdom in this interim time where both grow together. The real question isn't where is justice because the answer is given. But the real amazing thing is that God has placed a stay on the ultimate reaping for the elect's sake. Verse 29, Jesus says, Don't go reap right now, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let us not be too antsy for the sickle to pull in safely into the barns of glory God's harvest. Because there are those who are suffering in places the gospel could never otherwise go who will testify in their sufferings to the power of Jesus Christ to perhaps a jailer who will hit their knees in repentance and prayer, saying to a Paul, saying to a Silas, men and brethren, what must I do to be saved? A man who just hours before, perhaps with malice, was a guard instructed to kill them if they so much made a move to escape. And now he wants a way of escape from them. These are the kinds of situations I believe Jesus is referring to when he says, if you pull out the wheat and you gather it in right now, or if you pull out the weeds and gather them in right now, you are in danger of damaging a harvest that is yet germinating in that ground of mixed plantings. God has a purpose. God has a purpose. And there is a concurrent nature to his divine sovereignty in this matter. Yes, for a season... The wicked prosper. But the balances will be corrected ultimately and perfectly at the point of His sovereign choosing. And in the meantime, if the grace of God has tarried so long as to to allow you and me, wicked sinner, to join the wheat 
then praise the Lord for His long-suffering. His long-suffering ultimately is for the sake of His purposes for the elect. And the trial and the discouragement and the difficulty is a tool in His hands to shape for His perfect and inscrutable wisdom and purposes this world according to His sovereign design. So let us both grow, let both grow together is the commandment in verse 30. Another striking phrase, let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers at that point to make the discriminating call, to divide, to demarcate between these two different kinds of plants, those that are wheat and those that are weeds. The Bible tells us through and through that The righteous and the wicked both temporarily benefit from God's world. We're told in the Psalms that the rain falls on the wicked and on the just. But we're also promised, Psalm 37 we referred to earlier, but also Psalm 73, lest we become disillusioned with this reality that when we go to the presence of the Lord, namely His Word, and if we bow our hearts before its truth, we can see God's ultimate end. He does indeed set the, we- or set the weeds and set the wicked in slippery places and they will one day be gathered into huge bonfires and the torch of God's justice will touch that tinder and it will be dry and ready for the flame and it will burn with an eternal light testifying to God's magnificent holiness as every person outside the covenant of God's grace, receives the just wrath of him in hell forever for refusing the offer, the truth, and the sacrifice of Christ. This is a reality. Sometimes considering the weight of hell itself allows us to endure a little longer when we see injustice in the short term. We pray that in this time more would repent turn from their wicked ways as we have and come into the kingdom. Notice finally under concurrent nature of divine sovereignty that although this ground in a corporate sense is producing weeds and wheat, it's different from the soil in the individual heart that produces in some cases thorns and good seed, good plants. That is, for an individual... If we have cares of life or the deceitfulness of riches that grow together with the seed in our heart, what happens? It chokes out the seed, the good seed, and we run the risk of not knowing the Lord at all and not ever producing fruit and proving ourselves to be indeed unbelievers in the end, unfruitful, not bearing either 30, 60, or 100 fold. But in a corporate sense, it's a little different. Though the weeds and the wheat grow together, notice the weeds do not choke out the wheat. That is to say, by application, persecution does not destroy the church of Jesus Christ. And boy, will fools try. How many eons now, over and again, have wicked governments, evil men, malicious intent seeking to destroy the kingdom, launched an infanticide campaign against (coughs) every baby that might produce a deliverer for the people of God from Egypt. 
against every child under the age of two that might produce a messianic cry and rallying point to overthrow a Herod. How many in our day, the wicked intentions of Lucifer himself seek to destroy the innocents by perpetrating by judicial fiat, abortion, that wreaks havoc and holocaust on our land, destroying life. How many wars unjustly fought have left in the wake of their tragedy masses, waves of civilians left dead, unable to breathe. And yet, what has happened? His church has endured. No matter what difficulties, no matter matter what malice, no matter what onslaught of persecution, the weeds do not destroy the wheat. You compare these two parables and we see that it's much more dangerous that we would entertain cares of life and riches than it would ever be, spiritually speaking, for us to be persecuted. What would you rather have? Persecution or the cares of life? What would you rather have? Persecution or tempt yourself with the deceitfulness of riches is the question that these two parables pose before us. I hope the Spirit of God would lend us to answer, I would rather have persecution. I would rather have a world hating me and be loved by God than be entertaining evil seeds in my own heart that might be the undoing of the good seed, of the soil, of the individual. And so we see in this example what has been, as it's been quoted in history, the seed of the church, the martyrdom of the saints. There is an incredible quote. A lot of times, I can't restrain myself from saving these for sermons, so I apologize if you're hearing this twice because I've shared it with some of you. There was a French philosopher named Montesquieu that was one of the primary influences during the time of the framing of this nation. And as far as I can tell, though I haven't read him much myself, he would not have been necessarily that good of an influence. Enlightenment thinking and humanism may have overtaken a lot of his worldview. There's a quote by Montesquieu that came across um, a podcast I was listening to in a sermon this week or last week. And this is what Montesquieu says related to religion in society. He says, A more certain way to attack religion is by favor, by the comforts of life, by the hope of wealth. Not what reminds one of it, but by what makes one forget it. Not by what makes one indignant, but by what makes men lukewarm. When other passions act on our souls, and those which inspire religion are silent. In the matter of changing religions, state favors are stronger than penalties. Do you understand the context of that quote? Montesquieu is making the Jesus point here, but he's not doing it necessarily in a positive fashion. He's saying from a social engineering standpoint, from the elitist government standpoint, if you want to reduce the influence of a religious faction, let's say Christianity in America, if you want to reduce its influence, tempt them with riches. Give them luxury. Give them an easy life. Give them state favors. Give them subsidies. That's far more likely to quench good fruit than any amount of persecution could ever hope to do. And so we have it today. We're a perfect illustration of this very point. In America today, the church remains impotent while it's fat on its prosperity. Yet overseas in China, they're hungry. And again, we've grown drunk and lazy on the fat of prosperity. And it's proven in our case in the American church, generally speaking, it seems, that the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of life have served to stagnate us. 
to make us lukewarm. Meanwhile, overseas, though certainly weeds and wheat are growing together, there's a mighty move of God that is being championed beneath the surface that might just spring up into the new missionary movement to send godly men this direction. And I would love one day to host one of them with a fired-eyed commitment to the Word of God speaking from this pulpit today with the perspective of faith under fire that I can't bring you because I haven't been in the same prisons. I haven't endured under the same lashes. But they are, and they're standing. And though the weeds and the wheat stand together, the weeds, that is, the persecutors, cannot kill the church. Amen. Final point this morning, the divergent nature of human destiny. There are two ways this will end, burning and harvesting. Two ways the, pro- the parable ends, burning of judgment and the harvesting of redemption. Verse 30, let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned and gather the wheat into my barn. Turning over to the explanation, verse 40, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun. In the kingdom of their father, he who has ears, let him hear. First phrase, at harvest time. At the close of the age, the reaping angels will be dispatched. And this end times or this human destiny, a word to refer to that would be eschatological interim, will be complete. We live in a kind of interim time. Interim means the space between two events. The event of Christ manifest in his kingdom proclaimed and the event of Christ's kingdom ultimately consummate and here we are in the interim and at the close of the age at the end of the interim that will be the time of great harvest and great reaping and at that point the nature of human destiny will be clear to have only two paths fire and glory second phrase under human destiny Gather the weeds first. This reminds us of the winnowing language. Verse 30, reading again. This reminds us of language that we've previously read in this gospel, but Jesus declares, let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. Gather the weed into my barn. This is in part fulfilling in Jesus' own language of the prophecy that was spoken of him by John the Baptist In chapter 3, verse 12, His, that is Christ, by the voice of John the Baptist, the precursor preparing the way for the the Messiah, His winnowing fork is in His hand, and He will clear the threshing floor and gather His wheat into the barn until the chaff, but the chaff He will burn with unquenchable fire. And thus Jesus echoes and reiterates the very words of John. And in this winnowing language, we see that there will be a separation One day the weeds will be separated from the wheat. And gloriously, this promise tells us exactly what all will be separated from the experience 
of the children of the kingdom at that time. In verse 41, we read, what will be separated from us? Not just the weeds, not just the wicked, but all causes of sin along with all lawbreakers. And that ought to make the heart of every believer ring with, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, as we are anguished often in the lingering sin and old man we wrestle with still in our painfully slow sanctification process. But there's coming a time when those who are the wheat will be separated from all causes of sin as well as all lawbreakers. And finally, under the divergent nature of human destiny, there's a name for Christ that he himself employs that is rich in comprehensive biblical meaning. At first, it seems self-deprecating almost. Verse 41, the Son of Man, capitalized Son of Man, will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. As Jesus taking on the cloak of humility when He uses this language, yes, but not only yes. Jesus refers to Himself as the Son of Man and Son of Man can refer certainly to a human being. But in the context of who Jesus is and his declaration, this is saturated, this term is saturated with so much more meaning. The Son of Man is the incarnate Son of God. The one who, in his two natures, is the only perfect and satisfactory sacrifice to justify us and to satisfy the wrath of God. The second person of the Trinity in taking on human flesh is here pictured and self-identified as the Son of God, the incarnate one. But thirdly, and with an even more glorious and prophetic overtones, when we think of Son of Man, think of this. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the Son of Man. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. This Son of Man reference comes heavy laden with meaning, incarnation, the cross, and the close of the age implications. May we bow before His authority. May we join the nations, tribes, and tongues worshiping before His throne as He presents to Almighty God the reward of His suffering in completion one day. May we bend our ear to His teaching and ultimately Let it be our prayer today. May He give us ears to hear. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, though we will never in this side of glory and perhaps not even in the next fully understand the implications of Your Holy Word, I pray that You would nevertheless increase our capacity to love and retain these beautiful truths. I pray that you would equip and encourage your body today. Let us be reminded that we serve a risen and ascended Lord whose corporate kingdom, the corporate nature of his kingdom extends this world, this universe over. And we as his triumphant and militant church carry with us weapons of war 
such that the gates of hell cannot prevail against us. I pray that you would commission and send us, Lord, as you did your early disciples, in spite of a land, Lord Jesus, that is under such deception and often drunk, as we mentioned, on the curse of cares of life and hardness of soil, obstinance towards your word, Lord, self-righteousness, self-aggrandizement, deceitfulness of riches. Let it not be, Lord, a trapping for us, but instead let us stay close to the refuge of your word, to stay convicted in your, and among your people under the influence of the Holy Spirit you leave to comfort and guide and let us boldly proclaim, no matter where we are planted, whether there's weeds all around or not, that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the harvest, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of glory, and the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And it's in his holy name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.